0: There are things about, you know, the materialist school of analysis that gets at things that's correct, right? That, for example, that markets aren't natural, but they're human creations. This, you know, is obviously heresy on the right, but I've always retained the sense that the market wasn't handed down to us from heaven or whatever. It's just a human institution. And the rise of market society was attended by a great deal of coercion to sort of force people used to communitarian forms of life to get used to this new mode where they're
1: constantly on the clock. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. I have some news to share that I'm really excited about. I have a new book coming out in about six weeks. It is called The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time. As you know, I have become quite concerned about the transformation of much of the left and much of the mainstream in how we think about issues of identity over the last years. But a lot of the criticisms of quote-unquote workness are themselves simplistic, sometimes reactionary or extremist. I have done the work. I have seriously read the literature in this tradition, and I have mounted what I think is the most serious critique of left identitarianism so far. In the first part of the book, I tell the really interesting story of how a new set of ideas about race and gender and sexual orientation came to be highly influential in universities by about 2010. I delve into the works of Michel Foucault and Edward Said, of Gayatri Spivak, of Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw and show how a synthesis of their different ideas became dominant in corners of the campus. In the second part of the book, I then asked myself how it is that these ideas went From being pretty marginal to society as a whole as recently as 2010, to being the dominant force in many of our institutions by about 2020. In the third part of the book, I then mount a philosophical critique of the application to these ideas to many of the subjects that determine our public culture today. I describe why we can understand each other across the boundaries of race and gender, despite the concerns of standpoint theory. I make a case for wholeheartedly embracing mutual cultural influence rather than being concerned that anything that might be described as cultural appropriation is in itself worrisome. I make a new kind of case for free speech with arguments but a little bit different from the tradition of how people have written about it in the past. I critique the new forms of progressive separatism that have become hugely influential in education and other key institutions, sometimes separating kids at the age of six or seven or eight, according to their race. And I propose a better alternative for advancing towards a just society when the forms of race-sensitive public policies which are now being embraced by big parts of the political system. Finally, in the fourth part of the book, I make a case for a more humanistic, universalistic approach to how to build a good society, one that takes seriously the real discrimination and injustice that exists against ethnic and sexual and other minorities today but that does not give up on a fundamental aspiration that in a just society, how we treat each other and how the state should treat all of us should become less rather than more dependent on the groups into which we are born. The way in which we currently think about identity, I argue in this book, is a trap. It's a political trap, which ultimately empowers rather than weakens Far right populists like Donald Trump. And it's a personal trap, giving a lot of young people the hope that they will gain social recognition through an obsession with ascriptive identities, but ultimately fails to deliver on that promise because true recognition requires thinking of people as individuals, not merely as members of a particular group. The fight over the identity trap is going to determine the contours of much of our intellectual life for the coming decades. I have a call to action for you. Pre-sales are really important to the success of a book. So please, if you enjoy this podcast, if you think you would learn from this book, head now to your favorite website and pre-order the identity trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. And if you have a podcast, if you want me to come to your university organization to speak about this book, if you want a review copy, feel free to reach out to goodfightpod at gmail.com. My guest today is Sorab Amari. Sorab is one of the leading conservative voices in the country today. And unlike some other conservatives I sometimes have on the podcast, he's not a liberal. He considers himself a post-liberal conservative. He is the founding editor of Compact magazine and the author of a number of interesting books, including most recently Tyranny Inc., How Private Power Crushed American Liberty and What to Do About It. Saurabh and I started the conversation by talking about some areas where we have interesting areas of overlap and agreement, including the way in which corporate power has grown in the United States and the importance for workers to organize against that and to have economic policies that actually favor working people. But in the second half of the conversation, we did also get into a really interesting, passionate but civil debate about philosophical liberalism. We really try to figure out and sort out what liberalism is, to what extent it is responsible for things in our society that are not working well, and whether we should therefore give up on philosophical liberalism. As you can imagine, I was defending liberalism. Saurabh was attacking it. I think the conversation was really revelatory about some of the largest, deepest philosophical issues about our political moment today. Saurabh Ahmari, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks, Yasha. Good to be with you after many years.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's been a little while. We've been on various political journeys and uh, sometimes we met and sometimes they don't. But listen, you have a really interesting new book called Tyranny, Inc. And from somebody who is you know, a conservative intellectual at this point, you might think that when they write about Tyranny, Inc., we are writing about Harvard University or Brookings or something like that. But you're writing about the big corporations in the United States. What do you mean by Tyranny, Inc.?
0: Yeah, sure. This is not a tirade against, quote-unquote, woke capital. It's really a critique of the workings of unhindered capitalism as such. And it comes not from a kind of conservative cultural place in the sense that, oh, corporations are pushing gender ideology and so forth, but rather in a much more fundamental level it's an attempt to show how our supposedly non-coercive market societies are in fact suffused with coercion, but that this coercion is taken to be in a quote-unquote private sphere, it's in the marketplace, it's diffuse, or it's in the workplace, and therefore it's not treated as being justiciable or being subject to democratic give-and-take. All the sort of elements that we expect of a decent society in the kind of public sphere, we partition that off in so much of our market lives and are forced to acquiesce to Coercion that is sometimes so systematic and so unjust that I argue it amounts to what I call private tyranny. And so I sort of give a tour of our political economy from the bottom up, from the point of view of typically people who have been victims of this kind of coercion. You know, for example, Workers who are whistleblowers but are gagged from speaking out because of non-disclosure or non-disparage agreements in their workplace agreements to the abuse of commercial arbitration, which is sort of a technical issue, but it's not that complicated. Commercial arbitration was something that was meant for merchants of relatively equal bargaining power when they met each other on the marketplace. They could agree to resolve their disputes through a private mediator but it was never meant to be expanded into the workplace where you have situations of vast disparities in bargaining power so i tell the story of you know an ernst and young employee who had a case against ernst and young for unpaid wages under california law and under the fair labor standards act which establishes a federal minimum wage
1: It feels like a bad idea, by the way, for an accounting firm to try and stiff its workers out of wages because you'd feel like the accountants are going to notice. I might not notice, but the accountant would.
0: You would think, but precisely because of the arbitration clause, which our Supreme Court is, but mainly because of conservative Supreme Court justices have treated as ever more ironclad, he wasn't able to do a class action, which is the remedy that the relevant statute provides, the Fair Labor Standards Act. But the arbitration clause overrode that such that he would have had to individually arbitrate at the cost of about $200,000. Ernst and Young agreed that it would have cost him $200,000 in order to recover about 200000 percent of that amount. So like $4,000. More broadly, the corrosion of the real economy by asset stripping private equity and hedge funds, including the erosion of local journalism, which is a threat to basic civic fabric and being able to hold local actors accountable. Many, many counties in the United States now lack any sort of local news coverage. And there's all sorts of negative effect, as you know, associated with that. To how the the wealthy abuse the the bankruptcy, the Chapter Eleven bankruptcy process, to shield their assets from you know lawsuits from workers and consumers who are legitimately aggrieved. So I sort of tell that reported story, and then in the second half of the story, I tell a more of a political economic history of how we ended up here from roughly speaking, Lincoln's address to the Wisconsin Agricultural Society, where he set out essentially the Whig Republican account of, you know, a free labor market, through the reforms of the New Deal that addressed a lot of these problems and brought about a kind of what I call political exchange capitalism, a capitalism that's subject to democratic give and take and where politics kind of compassed the market to now the neoliberal era, which may be in its last leg, some would argue, but at any rate, we're still living through it, which I argue have brought us back to the pre-reform, pre-New Deal. So it's sort of shockingly a conservative celebration of the New Deal
1: as well. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. And I want to get to that interesting overlap between a lot of the things that you're saying, a lot of things that some much more left-wing guests that I might have on the podcast would be saying. One content question, how new is this or how bad is this at this moment in American history relative to other periods? So I'm sure that some of the specific phenomena you're talking about are of this moment. The role of arbitration court, certainly, I imagine, is much greater today than it would have been 25 or 50 or 100 years ago. But of course, in the late 19th century, you had all of the different kinds of ways in which the railroad bosses and others were in charge of American economic life and were able to really extract resources from workers in very bad ways. And so, is this a story of things were really bad, and then we got better for a little while with the New Deal, and perhaps the middle 20th century, and then we got bad again? Or would the situate us in the larger sweep of American history? in terms of how worried we should be about the overall challenges facing American workers and the overall power that, you know, Tyranny, Inc., that big corporations have today relative to other moments in American history.
0: I would say that largely it's a story of things were pretty bad and then there was this mid-century era on both sides of the Atlantic. This model took different names, embedded liberalism was one, social or Christian democracy was another, and here it was New Deal liberalism. And then we have a kind of counterpunch where the neoliberal ideology, this idea that not only should the state stay out of the way of market actors but the state should aggressively work to marketize elements of life that even the sort of most goonish 19th century Gilded Age tycoon wouldn't have thought of as something that should be subject to market forces like certain public utilities and so forth. that became very aggressively marketized in our time. So there are echoes between now and the pre-reform, pre-New Deal era. So, for example, I argue that we're back to, in many ways, in employment agreements, we're back to the Lochner era. The Lochner era was named after a 1905 Supreme Court case where the High Court held that the New York State could not regulate the hours that bankers had to work in one week. The legislature had imposed a 60 hour limit, but the court struck that down on the idea that this was a violation of a constitutional principle of liberty of contract. And many other child labor, et cetera, type violations were struck down. I think we are going back to that in some ways. So, for example, with the things I mentioned, you know, non-disclosure agreements, non-disparage agreements, et cetera, where typically a worker, you've already accepted the job. You've already moved across the country. You've already bought a house potentially or taken out a lease or rented a car or what have you. And then you show up to work and that's when they hand you a fat pile of papers and the kind of Lochner libertarian mentality, which is very attractive to many American judges, is that at that point, if you look at that document and you see a clause about non-disclosure that you don't like, you are kind of free to either try to renegotiate or walk away. But that's not how the reality at all works. And this was what the New Dealers recognized, which is they tried to rectify So in that sense, it's an echo. I would argue there are some elements of this that are genuinely new and far more terrifying. So I mentioned, for example, commercial arbitration, which was not used against workers back in the day. There are other ones including sort of surveillance of workers where the technology simply has advanced to a degree. So I present in the book an actual employment agreement from a very large and important company that says that its employees give up the right to their persona, their voice, their singing voice, and they do so for commercial purposes, right? It's not just that the company might record you in order to use your photo or your image in a training brochure, but to market your voice to, you know, for example, Siri, which uses human voice and likeness data to perfect its service. But that also could be sold to, I don't know, a future virtual pornography system that allows you to pick whom the porn actors should virtually be. And the giving up of your right to your image is in perpetuity with no right against either your employer who licensed that or the licensee, whoever that licensee might be. So that's the kind of thing that again, you know, I don't think any monocle tycoon from the nineteenth century would have thought of it's a problem of now. So in some cases, we're more menaced.
1: That's really interesting. So I want to sort of situate this a little bit in the broader ideological debates in American life at this moment, right? You know, there is a move within parts of the Republican Party to try to actively appeal to the working class. The way I think about this is that and I've said this on a podcast before, you know, 40 years ago, if you had been able to ask one policy question to voters in order to predict whether they're going to vote for the Democrats or for the Republicans, I think the best question to ask would have been something along the lines of You know, would you rather have higher taxes and a bigger welfare state or lower taxes and a smaller welfare state? And the people who opted for the first option would have, broadly speaking, been Democrats. And the people who would have opted for the second option would have, broadly speaking, been Republicans. And so as a result, there wasn't a perfect incidence of income and people's votes. There was always more left leaning upper middle class professionals and intellectuals and academics and uh, government workers and so on. But broadly speaking, if you were working class, you were more likely to vote for Democrats. And if you were affluent and if you were a business elite, you were more likely to vote for a Republican Party. I think what's happened since then is a real shift towards culture as the driving force of our partisan divide. Today, you actually would find Democrats and Republicans being quite split on the question that I asked a moment ago. And a better question to ask would some probably be about immigration or about trans issues or about some other hot button cultural issue, which is going to do a much cleaner job of dividing people who are going to vote for Democrats and people who vote for Republicans. But because a lot of the American professional class and the upper middle class is culturally very progressive... This has sort of shifted the class lines of American politics in an interesting way. And today, a huge swath of the Republican electorate is working class white voters, but increasingly working class non-white voters as well. And so there's a sort of odd moment where the Democratic Party largely still stands for more redistributive policies, but they actually have an electorate that doesn't particularly stand to profit from those. And the Republican Party in practice still largely favors large corporations and lower taxes and so on, but they have an electorate that is naturally in tune with those policies. So I see you as part of an effort to align the Republican Party's economic policies with some of its more natural constituency after this kind of realignment towards cultural politics, which is scrambled American politics in a certain kind of way. So I have two questions for you. I mean, A, does that feel like a fair characterization of part of your project? And then two, how successful is it? Because there's certainly interesting intellectual movements and pushes in that direction of which you're a part. There's certainly some uh, elected officials who uh, seem to have embraced this, like probably most prominently, I would say, Tom Carton. But there also still are very long-standing links between the Republican Party and the business community. And a lot of what Donald Trump did in office, for example, was actually lowering taxes on corporations and so on. So is this, and I don't mean to say that you're insincere, but is this going to end up being sort of interesting window-dressing that the sort of center of gravity is going to continue being in the direction of the Republicans being more friendly to business and Democrats being less friendly to business? Or do you really think you can sort of be at the vanguard of a kind of economic revolution within the Republican Party here, and we're going to see a more radical shift in partisan alignment about economics over the next 10 or 20 or 30 years?
0: So the first part of your question, that's absolutely a correct characterization. And I would say, you know, without sounding self-important, that I have been one of the sort of protagonists of the realignment at the intellectual level of trying to articulate a conservatism that tries to ameliorate some of the stresses caused by the market system on asset-less Americans and tries to build up lives of relative stability, of greater stability, less precarity for working class and asset-less people. Looking back, I've been trying to do that, I would say, for more than half a decade. I didn't immediately warm up to Trumpism. In fact, I was one of the never-Trumpers at the Wall Street Journal editorial page when the 2016 election took place. But over time, through a lot of thinking and even reflecting on my own life and the sense of precarity that I felt as an immigrant when I first got here and my mother could barely access any health insurance. And it was the kind of health insurance where if you got sick, you were more worried about the bills that would like subsequently invade your mailbox than you would be about the actual illness. Like, (laughs) you know, not to get too personal, but also, I mean, even as an adult working as a professional in New York City, you know, one of the kind of memories that's been seared into my mind was the fact that my son got sick. It wasn't a big deal. It's called the human virus. It takes like 24 hours hospital monitoring, but even with insurance and I was working for, you know, News Corp, a large company and had the nicest insurance, I still had to pay, you know, a $4,000 bill in addition to whatever insurance contributed. So I give an extra keynote address or whatever, write an essay, and that's okay. But I just wondered how do, you know, lower middle class, working class people deal with this? You know, I'm a man of the right. And so that pushed me toward embracing this ideal of working class conservatism or populist conservatism. And one that if it worked, it would have been really nice, right? It would, on the one hand, it would solve the Wounds of economic neoliberalism was described in my book. And on the other hand, because it's conservative, it would also pay a due respect to ordinary people's yearning for greater order, more social cohesion than left liberals had granted them. But looking back at it now, I'm actually quite disillusioned with that project. You know, maybe circa 2018-19, it seemed like it would be so easy. But I don't think that largely Trump was able to actually realign the Republican Party during his time in office. Okay, partly you can blame the fact that he had to spend so much energy fending off challenges to his legitimacy, which turned turn out to be kind of the response of an establishment here, you and I may disagree, but of trying to undo the outcome of 2016 by sort of juridical or law enforcement means in very underhanded ways. But even barring that, you know, even if he had the executive willpower of an Andrew Jackson or the reforming genius of like an FDR, I just don't think that it's possible to easily realign the Republican Party. There are shining little exceptions. I actually wouldn't name Tom Cotton, although I respect Senator Cotton. I would point to, you know, Senator Hawley, Senator Rubio. Senator Vance, as the people who are trying to play around with this. But largely, I just have come to believe that the Republican Party will continue to be a vehicle for the wealthy and a specific type of wealthy, even if, as Trump has brought in more initially white white working class people, and you could say in 2020, more of a multiracial working class, the power base of the party is not even necessarily large corporations, which you can deal with if you want to build a kind of class compromise. It's the small time rich or the Petit bourgeois, to use a different term, but it's the guy who is a chain of regional car dealerships and goes to the rubber chicken dinner of the local party in you know Minneapolis or something. And he is typically the psychology is he's sort of subject to the topsy-turvy of the market much more than large corporations, but he sort of blames government for the source of corporate privilege rather than the market system. And so his instinct is always we have to dismantle the state. If only if I were left alone, you know, I could do stuff. Also his mentality, his or her mentality of what a working class person is, is typically really like an independent operator of a roofing business, a self-owner. It's not, you know, a Latina woman who works in hospitality or a customer service representative who's Filipina. And so In terms of when the party thinks working class it doesn't think like the mass working class that actually exists many of which you know have cultural views that republicans don't like you know there are adjunct professors who are still quite precarious they're coffee shop baristas etc but they need economic justice and the party will never come to serve them for both cultural and for these kind of class-based reasons so i really look to the center left in terms of economic reform really driving it because you look at what Trump did in office, besides the tariffs, which his successor has actually upheld and the kind of decoupling, which President Biden has continued, for the most part, his major legislative achievement was a tax cut for corporations engineered by Paul Ryan. And there was so much that wasn't done, right? So like Republicans complained about big tech power, but it was Lena Kahn, who was then a congressional staffer, a Democratic congressional staffer, who was putting forward the most serious reform proposals and antitrust kind of thinking, and who's now President Biden's competitions
1: are. That's super interesting. And you're right, by the way, that I meant wholly, not cotton. I just misspoke on that. So there's two interesting things in what you're saying. The first is that we seem to be in agreement on the fact we have a bunch of disagreements about Trump that we don't need to prosecute right now, but we seem to be in agreement about the fact that even though he made certain kinds of moves in the direction of a more economically populist set of policies that would actually help the working class, which I think was an underplayed part of his appeal in 2016, the fact that he said, yeah, perhaps it is the state's job to make sure you have decent health insurance, unlike the other 15 people on the stage at the time and so on, right?
0: The Department of Labor is a really good example, right? Trump got the highest share of union household votes in 2016 for a Republican since Ronald Reagan in 1984. It's because of his trade talk and he sort of his gestures that he made toward unions. But his Department of Labor was ultimately put in charge of one of the Scalia sons, Eugene Scalia, who, you know, is just a big law lawyer for corporations and so on the issue of like arbitration in that particular case that I mentioned, uh, the case of the Ernst & Young employee and one other case, the Trump administration actually went against its own National Labor Relations Board to side with Ernst and Young. This is under Trump, side with Ernst and & Young and ensure that the arbitration clause was upheld. And it's just kind of confirming what you're saying. And Who is to blame for that? Well, it's partly Trump and his indiscipline, even if he has certain instincts he couldn't will them through. But it's just like, that's the party apparatus. If you're a Republican, you get elected and you want to staff up the Department of Labor, well, you go to Eugene Scalia. Like, that's who we have. And so that's a problem.
1: So that's a part we agreed on, and I'm not surprised we agreed on. The part that surprised me in what you just said is that... It nearly sounds like you don't expect that to change particularly, which is to say I would have thought you would say something like, yes, we're at the beginning of this transformation of the Republican Party. We haven't won that fight yet but the place to win it is the Republican Party. And we might get there. And I, I didn't know exactly how sanguine you would be about the chances of success, but I thought you would say, you know, that's a project. But right now you invoked one part of the political spectrum in which, to my knowledge, you have never in your life situated yourself. You've situated yourself on, I think at certain points of your life on the far left and on the center-right and on the more populist right, but never, I think, on the center-left. And right now you're saying, you know what, in the end, in order to make these economic improvements work and happen, it'll have to be, I don't know if you mean through the center-left or at least in coalition with the center-left. So, you know, how do you see this playing out? I mean, is this just a task for the successive next democratic administrations, which you might argue have historically been somewhat more sympathetic to some of that, even for there may have been a neoliberal period and so on, but in a way that's the less surprising projection about American politics. Have you basically given up on getting the Republican Party to change what it's economic infrastructure and his intellectual infrastructure is do you think it's going to have to be an agreement between the two parties sort of what are the different scenarios you have in mind here
0: one point which is precisely because i've written memoirs and sort of tracing my intellectual development i always get slightly sensitive that people are like you change your minds but like just so your listeners understand like i was a college marxist which is a very typical character and then i more or less shifted to the right and i sort of hardly can be said to have moved to the center left or anything like that since I'm a man of the right. That said, I think there are things about you know, the materialist school of analysis that gets at things that's correct, right? That, for example, that markets aren't natural, but they're human creations. This, you know, is obviously heresy on the right, but I've always retained the sense that the market wasn't handed down to us from heaven or whatever. It's just a human institution. And the rise of market society was attended by a great deal of coercion to sort of force people used to communitarian forms of life to get used to this new mode where they're constantly on the clock, et cetera, et cetera. It's not such a drastic change. You've been everything, you know, just, but to answer your question, look, no, I mean, I should say there are beginnings of these sort of green shoots that do give me hope on the right Senator Vance has now partnered with Senator Warren to work on a bill having to do with banking executives, essentially holding them more accountable. Or again, Vance is pushing forward a railroad reform will in the aftermath of the accident in East Palestine. You could characterize that as a post-neoliberal bill, right? The Chamber of Commerce doesn't like it, et cetera. So there are these green shoots, but what they're growing out of is a morass and largely as a party of the wealthy and of corporate power. The resistance, for example, that that Vance Railroad bill has met from the party establishment tells you something. And I've, you know, in my own experience of trying to push through these ideas, I've just encountered the sort of vast apparatus of donors, et cetera, who work really hard to prevent the Republican Party from becoming a genuinely economic populist entity. And so that gives me a sort of despair. And so maybe that's what you're hearing. But, you know, I just think there are certain historical forces and institutional forces that make that very difficult. So what is my theory of change? I still do think, to come back to your point, that this kind of reform will have to happen in the middle. Right. And that's why it's important for those senators to work with people like Sanders and Warren and with the Biden administration, which, frankly, I think gets a lot right on political economy. And you gradually do see a replacement potentially emerge for the neoliberal model. That's how the neoliberals themselves came to power. You know, Thatcher famously said that her greatest achievement was Tony Blair. Clintonian Democrats were as committed to this set of ideas as were Reaganite Republicans, et cetera, et cetera. And so to replace it, you also need to build a consensus in the middle. Right now, I see the energy for reform still largely being on the left with just these few green shoots, as I said, like Holly, et cetera.
1: So we've sort of covered some of the things on which, broadly speaking, we're in agreement. You know, it comes down to the details of exactly the proposed solutions to some of the problems you outlined, but certainly I agree with you that there are problems, and I imagine that if in some strange alternative universe we were you know, senators on opposing sides of the aisle trying to figure out how to co-sponsor a bill on this, we could probably come to an agreement on this. I think there is also a really interesting area of deep intellectual disagreements between us, and that is about the role that, broadly speaking, philosophical liberalism should play in the United States. So I'd love to get into that topic a little bit. Why don't you state, in your own words, sort of what you charge liberalism with? What is it that in your mind, philosophical liberalism gets wrong?
0: Sure, yeah. I mean, I think it's fair to characterize me as a post-liberal. It's a complicated term because it's sort of still pegged to liberalism in some way and doesn't have a positive content. But nevertheless, I think it's an apt term. I think that the biggest problem with philosophical liberalism is its refusal, but quite conscious, to acknowledge the common good as something that is legible to all human beings, that is the good of each individual as an individual. You know, and in other words, the common good, often liberals, classical or otherwise, when they hear the common good, they sort of imagine statist collectivism overriding the individual. But classically understood, the idea of the common good are goods that can be secured only by the community and that aren't diminished by virtue of being shared. That is, the more you share them, the more of those goods there are. And so those are justice, good order, you know, et cetera, et cetera. These are things that you don't get less justice if you divide up justice between people. And you can't individually secure justice. I think philosophical liberalism fundamentally, whenever you want to date its rise, is a product of a world in which things seem much more in flux and therefore, to speak of the common good appears as an imposition on the individual who should be free to maximize his, his or her individual autonomy as he or she sees it, as long as, now you can have different variations of liberalism or what follows after the as long as, but one prevalent version is say as long as there's harm done to the other or as long as the relationships are mediated by consent, you can go on. So this ideology, I mean, I think it's a denial of the capacities of human reason. Forget about revelation, but it's a denial of the capacities of human reason of what we can reason about the good of the person. And so I think that's, we could call it a classical critique of liberalism.
1: I guess one thing that puzzles me about what you were just saying is that when you read the founding documents of the American Republic or of modern liberal democracy in other countries, some idea of a public or the common good is fundamental both to the rhetoric that was used to justify those institutions and to the design of those institutions. The Federalist Papers say that the point of representation is not just to mirror public opinion, but to filter them in such a way as to derive superior insight. When you read Edmund Burke on the purpose of representation, it is precisely not for representatives to go and carry the interest of their constituencies to Parliament in London, but rather for them to deliberate together in the pursuit of uh, finding something that is actually in the larger good of a commonwealth. And so I would argue that the basic institutions that we have today have been designed with an understanding of the public good. Now, I think where the disagreement comes in, and by the way, I agree that in many ways we have perhaps become too dismissive of the idea of aiming towards that, and for sort of understandable reasons. When I talk to my students about these ideas or teach them those texts, they say that that's not what's going on in Washington, D.C. I mean, this is just, you know, some... Mixture of political grandstanding and interest representation. And certainly, I think, particularly in the United States today, there's a critique to say, for various reasons, our political system doesn't really live up to those kinds of ideals. And there's an important question about what to do about that. But I think at that level of abstraction, we agree. And I would argue that what you're presenting as a critique of liberalism isn't a critique of liberalism at all. It's a description of some of the core insights of the founders of the liberal tradition. Now, I think what we will start to disagree. Is when we start to think about, you know, what is the nature of that higher good or that public good or that common good, and where my stance is that you can absolutely think of some of the things you're arguing for in tyranny inc as part of a broader public good. It's not in the interest of every member of the country. Some corporations and perhaps even some listeners to his podcast who have a good amount of stock might profit from some of those things not being put in place. But in some meaningful sense, it would be very recognizable to the founding fathers. It is, in fact, in the common of the public good of our polity as a whole. Where I start to get nervous is when that public good legislates a set of specific moral precepts. And my understanding is that in your writing about what you call the higher good, This is starting to push against some of the other fundamental insights of a liberal tradition, namely that there's a fact of fundamental pluralism in modern society, that you and I have fundamentally different conceptions about what our moral duty is, what we should do with our free time, how we should lead our lives. Perhaps you and I actually don't that much in practical terms, but probably in theoretical terms we do. And some people will in theoretical terms because they will lead lives in very, very different ways. And that part of the fundamental recognition of human equality is that, not that there might not be a right answer to that, it's perfectly compatible with liberalism that some members of our party are going to be convinced that there is a right answer to that, and they may in fact be right. It may turn out that there is heaven and hell, and that if you live in the wrong way, you're going to go to hell. We're not sitting in judgment of that. But what we're sitting in judgment of is a polity in which some people abrogate themselves to themselves the right to say... I have the objectively right answer, and I'm going to impose that on you. And we don't want to do that for two reasons. The first is that it is deeply undermining of autonomy of people and deeply patronizing for me to sit here and say, I know the truth and you, Saurabh, don't, and I'm going to use the coercive apparatus of a modern state in order to force you to agree with me. But the second is a more practical one, which is that You know, political liberalism rose in many ways because of 30 years war and because of, you know, centuries of religious warfare in early modern Europe and the recognition that when polities have stakes that are that high, it becomes very, very hard to keep the peace. And so the best we can do is to say, look, I can appeal to you. I can stand on the subway platform and shout at you. I can denounce you in print. I can do all of those things to try and convince you because the stakes might be very high, right? I might really think that, you know, your salvation is at stake and I want you to be saved. And so I'm going to be making that argument for you of all passion and so on. But what I'm not allowed to do is to use the power of a coercive state in order to force you to do that, not just because it would be wrong on moral grounds because it violates your autonomy, but as importantly, because that way lies civil war, that way lies continual political instability,
0: and so on. You laid out a number of things, and I want to try to get them in some coherent order that at least matches the uh, the points that you made. The first point I would make is that you mentioned, you know, the founding, for example, the Constitution, you know, commits the polity to securing the general welfare. And that sure sounds a lot like the common good. And I agree. In fact, you know, in the kind of Aristotelian frame, it's impossible for people not to try to aim at some good. And for statesmen generally, they try to aim at the common good. And so I think that that fact that in the American founding, and more importantly for me is not necessarily the text of the founding, but in American historical practice, you have the common good reasserting itself itself in various forms, sometimes haltingly, to be sure, imperfectly. But to me, this strengthens the idea that human beings yearn for the common good over and against the sort of pure liberal theory that seems as much as possible to really shrink the common good to a point of deep privatization. And that privatization, you know, played out in American history of liberal theory, expanded or unfolded, played out in the form of grave injustices for the people who had been living largely sort of sedentary, communal, agricultural, subsistence-based lives. The rise of the Hamiltonian state was experienced as an economic and cultural and moral trauma. And so how do they respond? They respond in the form of the Jacksonian uprising against the Second Bank of the United States and the sort of larger market system. It's again, it's an imperfect uprising or what have you. A little later, you have the sort of progressive farmers, you have The New Deal, etc. All of these to me are this sort of American tradition of the common good. And so I don't set myself up against the American tradition. I think for people who are in my position, it is a mistake to do that because the common good and the yearning for some greater account of who we are as human beings than merely sort of grasping autonomous individuals, atoms sort of clashing with other atoms. That ideal is woven through our tradition and it expresses itself in, like I said, progressive farmers, populists, by which I mean the specific, the populist party, Teddy Roosevelt, FDR. But I think all of these, in some ways, stand in contradiction to the purest liberal theory, right? So like Lincolnian political economy and the Lincolnian response to the civil war, first of all, could be quite an idea of the executive that pure liberal theory couldn't tolerate. FDR and his various actions trampled liberal ideals. And I'm talking about his economic actions, to be clear here, that pissed off the liberals of his era because they were seen as illiberal, but he was asserting, I think, this idea of the common good. So I am not clashing with the American tradition. I would just say that the American tradition is more complicated than liberal theory and more valuable for that.
1: One of the things that I respect about you is that I think you really are always sincere in what you're saying. And by the way, that's why it wasn't meant to be a gotcha when I invoked some of your ideological changes. I think somebody who thinks about the world is going to change their mind about certain things. And I certainly don't have all the opinions I had when I was 19 years old. But I think here there's a point where, in my perception, you're in danger of inadvertently playing a kind of conjuring trick, where sort of the critique of liberalism becomes a critique of a particular set of economic policies, or perhaps a critique of some people who are liberals, and that then stands in for the larger liberal tradition. And so the legitimate critique of one set of views that you can hold at the same time as you also hold liberal views, sort of becomes a stand-in for an overall critique of the ideology in a way that, that I perceive to be unfair. So I agree with you with some of the tradition in American life of invoking the public good. And you then sort of want to drive a wedge between those two things and sort of say, you know, that's not liberal. That was always an opposition to liberalism. But it's not clear to me that the basic philosophical precepts of liberalism, to which I'm deeply committed as, I think, the only realistic set of ideas to hold together modern diverse societies in a way that allows them to thrive and in a way that allows them to keep the peace is I think somewhat orthogonal to the question about what set of economic policies we might pursue. To me, you can be a Bidenite on economic policy or you can be a Reaganite on economic policy or you can be FDR on economic policy. And broadly speaking, all of that is compatible with... Philosophical liberalism. Some of those forms of philosophical liberalism I prefer to others, right? I have my preferences within those sets of economic policies, but it seems to me that these are orthogonal. In the same way in which you might say, you know, the United States of 1990 was broadly liberal with some illiberal elements that have less to do with economic policy than, you know, for example, the discrimination of gays and lesbians, which continue to persist in, in America in the 1990s and so on. But so was S- Sweden in the 1990s or Sweden today. And those are very, very different in terms of economic policy, but they share the basic precepts that the public good is something we pursue in the legitimate field of public policy, in the areas in which we think the state should be involved in society and in our lives We should aim for something like the public good. But there is an area which is not subject to majority rule. And that area includes the deepest moral and religious decisions that we need to make about how to lead our lives and how we want to worship and what we want to say. And so to me, you know, that question where we start to disagree is more rightly at the center of debate over liberalism Then the debates over some of those economic policies, where I agree that there's been liberals who have embraced economic policies that I don't like, there's also been liberals that have embraced economic policies that I like. And that to me is because those questions do not stand at the heart of the debate and I think of our disagreement over philosophical liberalism.
0: The reason that I mentioned some of the economic stuff, but I could mentioned other examples, is just to point out that at various points, the American tradition, I would say even the European tradition, although that's much more difficult to speak about in sweeping terms because there's so many individual nations, but at various points, actually practicing liberal societies have gone against this idea that I think is axiomatic to liberalism, that the goal of of our common life together is to maximize the autonomy of the individual. You know, if you wanted to boil down liberal theory to an axiom, it's
1: no doubt that, right? So I disagree with that. And perhaps that's interesting. I think it's important to tease that out. There is a strain of liberal thought that treats as identical some kinds of conceptions of lives that certain people may have in a liberal society and the goal of liberalism so some people in liberal societies are going to be you know maximally self creating right their model of life what someone like john rawls would call the comprehensive conception of a good is you know, I want to go and have all the experiences in the world and I want to be untethered from other human beings and I want to be self-creating and I want to be involved in life of artistic and perhaps sexual exploration, right? Now, I will say two things about that. One is that I think that that is something that they should have the liberty to do in a society. I don't think anybody should lock them up for that. I don't think anybody should punish them for that. But the second thing I'll say about that is... That is not the goal of a liberal society. The goal of a liberal society is not to create as many people as possible who live those kinds of lives. And in fact, part of the freedom of living in a liberal society is your liberty, and honestly, probably my liberty, to tell them, I don't think you have a terribly coherent set of ideas about what's going to give you a satisfied life and what's going to create a good society. And perhaps you should think twice about whether that is really exactly how you want to lead your life. You may be mistaken in this.
0: But those are both liberty claims. They have their liberty claims. You state a different claim, but it's ultimately a claim about people being free to do X, Y, Z.
1: Yes, but just let me finish before. Now, I will punt it back to you. The point is that you said the goal of liberal society is to maximise human autonomy. And I think that there may be some liberals who think that we're trying to create a society in which everybody lives like that person who sort of is most maximally guided by human autonomy. But that is certainly not my motivation for a liberal society, not how I, and I would say most people in the liberal tradition would formulate it. We would say, look, we have this big fractious republic of 300 million people. And some people think that that is what they want to do in life. And when others think that others are deeply guided by the religious sense of what the duties are in the world, by the ties with our family members. How do we keep this together? How do we have a society in which these people coexist? And what we want to say is we want to create a society not of maximizing autonomy, but where autonomy is a side limit on what the state can impose on you. And that means that we respect the deeply religious person and their religious tie and their family ties and their religious obligations. And we want to create a society where they can be true to themselves. But we also respect the person who's self-creating in the way that I outlined and say, you get to go and lead your lives. And we have to figure out how to hold a society together that can do both of those things. But the goal is not to maximize autonomy. I resist that formulation. Sorry, I know there was a long response to two phrases of yours, but I think it's an important difference. And you can speak for as long as you want about that philosophical difference.
0: Sure. I mean, I think what you said is a good segue to some of the other points. I want to go back because you began with, you know, the founding and the American tradition. And I just wanted to emphasize that there's much in American practice that runs against liberal theory, and so that I value that. And I think we can sort of concretize this in an interesting way that I think would suss out how extreme liberal theory can be compared with actual practice in these societies, which is why I'm opposed to the society that I live in, root and branch. But so, for example, the United States had a Sabbatarian tradition going back to the colonial era. It's the idea that the state should preserve one day for rest, for contemplation, for prayer, et cetera. And it dated to the colonial era, and it stayed with us after the American Revolution. And it so intensely had taken root that at one point, you know, President George Washington is cited by a magistrate for riding his horse from Connecticut to New York State in violation of Sabbatarian law. Now, it took a very long time for the Sabbatarian tradition to be dismantled on liberal grounds, on fundamentally liberal autonomy grounds. So whether you think it's maximizing or just creating enough autonomy to protect the individual's autonomy or however you want to formulate it, this is a good concrete example, right? So that, you know, we had this communal tradition of cities, municipalities, even in the case of the U.S. Postal Service, not delivering mail on Sunday. Now, in pure liberal theory, that's a crime. And there were, by the way, in the 19th century, plenty who opposed you know, restricting mail delivery on Sunday. It was a kind of evangelical cause that many didn't like. And the evangelicals, it's not like they didn't want mail delivered on Sunday. It was that men would go carouse at the post office, everything else being closed. They would go ahead and drink beer. It was bound up with temperance movements and so forth. But in the early 20th century, the evangelicals find allies in the nascent labor movement. And so we have this restriction on Sunday postal delivery for a long time, up until relatively recently, where until Jeff Bezos managed to convince the Postal Service to have USPS drivers deliver Amazon products on Sunday. So what I'm trying to say is, to a certain kind of liberal, this tradition that we had, which was gotten rid of, by the way, mostly by sort of Chamber of Commerce Republicans over many years, the most recent statewide blue law was only repealed in like 2018 in South Dakota. To a certain kind of liberal, that is completely unacceptable. And the thrust of liberal society is to maximize individual autonomy. And the state can't set aside a certain day for rest or contemplation because I should be free to shop, to labor, to what have you. Now, I would argue in practice that redounds to the benefit of the asset owning few and to the disadvantage of working people. But, you know, I think if you commit to philosophical liberalism, you can't but think that as recently as Not too long ago, Americans were living in this authoritarian state that was awful. But if you actually look at American practice, it runs against the idea of maximal autonomy in this case. And it it had a pluralist religious tradition and a pluralist reality, but it could legislate one day for rest and for church.
1: I think that your point about laws establishing one day a week as a day of rest is an interesting one, but I think, again, you're sort of doing this rhetorical trick, and I don't mean that you're doing it sincerely, but I do think effectively you're doing it, of saying there's a certain aspect of a liberal tradition, and I disagree with it for reasons that are perfectly coherent, and therefore the whole liberal tradition somehow is wrong-headed. But that strikes me as just a very strange reading of a breadth of a liberal tradition. Because when I look at, again, a lot of European countries, that I think clearly are liberal societies, they have laws mandating that many shops be closed on Sundays, for example, certain kinds of shops that are necessary for daily necessities, you know, some kind of kiosk by the station is going to be open, gas stations are going to be open, right? But many clothing stores, even most supermarkets are going to be closed in many European societies. On Sunday. And in fact, in Germany, interestingly, in part for economic reasons, it's been the, the Liberal Party, the FDP, who has most opposed the loosening of Sunday opening laws. And again, here I would say that there's a broad debate within the Liberal tradition, and most Liberal political thinkers I know would say something like the following yes, the consideration that there should be a day when a lot of people in society are addressed. And not just that each person has some day a week where they can rest, which we can do with you know general labor laws, but also a day where families can be together so that most members or all members of a family are going to be off at the same time if they don't happen to be in essential professions like emergency room workers, who obviously we have to have some people around on Sunday and so on. That is an important enough aspect of a common good, of a public good, that we should preserve those kind of laws when others will disagree on whatever economic grounds. That's great. That's a debate firmly within the liberal tradition where liberals would start to step in is if you're saying, you know, our society, even though it's deeply religiously diverse with deeply different ideas about what religion mandates should be so guided by the religious sensibilities of one portion of a population that, you know, you shouldn't be allowed to have a dance party in your home on a Sunday or you shouldn't be allowed to ride your horse from one town to the next. On a Sunday, or as is the case on Friday evenings and on Saturdays in parts of Israel, you're going to be pelted with stones if you use a motorized vehicle on a day that some people think is a holy day of rest. Well, then the state has to step in and say, no, 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 no. You get to have your dance party. That is your own decision. And if somebody is pelting you with stones for violating their religious sensibility, we're going to punish them because that way lies deep social conflict that is unacceptable. So I think that's where liberal thinkers would draw the line.
0: So I insist that if you, at the level of theory... I think that autonomy is the highest good of liberal theory, okay, at the level of theory. We've litigated that enough. I want to make another point.
1: Okay, well, let me just agree with you on that interpretation. We don't have to argue it all out, but I would not put it that way, and I don't think most liberal thinkers would put it that way.
0: What I'm hearing from you is, for you, liberalism stands for the idea that in order to maintain a healthy pluralism, let's say, that you cannot legislate with things having to do with people's deepest convictions, right? That you can partition law from morality when it comes to people's deepest convictions.
1: I'm sorry, I don't mean to grandson, but that is not what I said, how I put it. I've been trying throughout to sort of pass the ideological Turing test and how I represent your thought, but I don't think you're doing the same for me. I mean, child pornography is is evil and abhorrent. And that is one of my deepest convictions. And I certainly think that as a society, we should legislate against child pornography, right? What I'm saying is that one of the recognitions of a liberal society for reasons both moral and practical is that humans have deeply different convictions about how to lead their lives. And that what a liberal society will do is to allow them to pursue their own ideas about how to lead their lives. That is different from maximizing autonomy. And it is not saying that we're not going to legislate in some of our deepest convictions when we don't interfere with our liberty to pursue our own lives as we see fit. It simply is a side constraint on the kind of society we have and the ways in which we can pursue the public good when it requires the majority using coercive power in order to dictate to a minority how they have to live.
0: What I was trying to get at, I was trying to give my best version of what you had put forward. And I think where you are coming from, I mean, it's a very typical liberal account of a world before liberalism that was just constantly riven by religious conflict and by ideological violence and coercion, which then liberalism diffused. It diffused it through a set of procedures and rights that were genuinely novel. And there's two answers to that. One is that, first of all, many of what you consider liberal achievements, like rational public deliberation or filtering public views through kind of representative institutions and persons, etc., charters for the protection of rights, etc., these predate liberalism. That is, they predate philosophical liberalism. And therefore, to critique liberal ideology or liberal theory is not to then say, oh, then and therefore the goal here is to dispense with a lot of these, because I recognize these as rooted in many cases in the classical and Christian tradition. That's one point. The second point is that afterward, after the rise of liberalism, you know, we suddenly came to an age where ideological conflict was largely smothered or stifled, and all we did was sort of deliberate, et cetera, and we have sort of competing rights, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, no longer are people imposed upon when they don't share the sort of majority views or what have you. And I just think that that's untrue. That first of all, the liberal age ushered in enormous violence in itself, right? In Napoleonic wars, liberalism has this tendency, just like Christianity, frankly, they're both universalist states. And it cannot tolerate places where liberalism does not reign. And so you have this sort of expansion of liberalism, clashing of arms. Liberalism coincided with the rise of nationalism. The two are kind of shared bourgeois ideologies. And by saying that okay, you now have the rights bearing citizen, it created this frenzy for border drawing and sort of deciding who now belongs as a citizen based on racial characteristics, ethnic and religious characteristics, etc. So that I just think that if your account of the pre-liberal past you know, as a place of darkness and a place of irrationality. And with the rise of liberalism comes suddenly this age of peace. No, it comes with the age of, in some cases, because of technology, in some cases, because of the nature of liberal ideology. comes with much more violent turbulence that crashes down on the heads of ordinary people. And it's in unsettling ways. You know, and finally, I would say that in our life today, You cannot say that the liberal state is not legislating morality in ways that are completely oppressive of the views of religious people. It's no longer enough to recognize that there's a right, for example, to change one's sex or gender, but that you as the other person have to coercively have to recognize that a man has become a woman, et cetera, et cetera. Of course this is coercive. And remember, I don't draw a sort of sharp distinction between public and private coercion, right? The fact that much of this is done, for example, by large Silicon Valley companies run by tech oligarchs, that's they who can discipline and punish you, you know, unperson you for using the wrong pronoun is not a matter of great importance to me because their power rests ultimately on state power. So it just seems impossible to me to create the state that you're talking about, which I think is why you're put in this difficulty of saying, well, no, no, that's not the liberal theory. That's not liberal theory either. Well, that's not it either. And it's not the world we live in now, but it's not. And so it's like, well, what is liberal theory then? Right. I think you run into these trouble because, of course, people legislate. Of course, people have an account of the good. And it's always normative. There's no way you can just create a purely procedural system when it comes to people's deepest convictions about, for example, what is a man and what is a woman. You will legislate these things one way or another. By the way, again, the sort of terms of service we accept upon joining a social media company, that's a form of legislation. That's a form of coercion. It is state-backed, et cetera, et cetera.
1: We're coming closer in a way to some of the core of our disagreement here. I think what he was saying just now is very interesting in a way I'll get to in a moment. But let me address first the claim that I have a true Scotsman fallacy, right? Like socialism always is triumphant because any actually tried form of socialism is wrong, but true socialism is not. I don't think that's quite fair. I've laid out quite clearly what my view of liberalism is. I just think that your formulations of it were not fair to the tradition, but I've given a kind of impromptu definition of what I do understand liberalism to be. Um, I agree with you that no society has been fully liberal in the history of the world. Just no society has been truly socialist or truly capitalist or truly Christian or truly Islamic or truly anything else. Empirically existing human societies are always both imperfect and imperfectly live up to their ideals, sometimes luckily, because sometimes the ideals that we're trying to impose in these societies are terrible. And even then, there's spaces of freedom against those ideals and ideologies. So certainly no society in the history of the world has been truly liberal, but that's true of other societies as well. The question for me is whether or not we have managed to live up closer to a liberal society over time and whether that has, on the whole, improved society or not. And on that question, I'm struck by the fact that you give an answer that is very similar to that of a set of thinkers that I've been reading for the Knox book that I have coming out, which is critical race theorists. And what critical race theorists say. Is there's ways in which our society continues to be imperfect and to discriminate in their case against you know, ethnic and sexual and so on minorities. And the claim that liberals make to, you know, have these great principles they've never fully lived up to. And things are not getting better. The idea that anything in race relations today is better than 50 or 100 years ago is just entirely false. There's a permanence, of racism, as some like Derek Bell says, it transmutes its form, but it's always as bad as it ever was. And therefore, we have to, you know, reject liberalism. And I think in a sort of somewhat parallel way, you're saying that we're not in any way living up to these liberal ideals. There's been no progress on that kind of front all of the shortcomings of a society aren't just something that coexists with our liberal ideals, they're caused by the liberal ideals, and therefore we have to reject them. Now, we have a very different idea about what kind of society we want to build in its dead, but the basic intellectual move, I think, is parallel. Now, I would have a different narrative, which is that I do think society today is, by the way, much more just in terms of race and in terms of sexual orientation other things than it was 200 or 100 or 50 years ago. And I think to deny this is really to be naive about American history and just how unjust it was at various uh, junctures of American life. But in the same way, I think that people today in the United States are much more at liberty to actually pursue the lives in a meaningful way, irrespective of the Particular beliefs that they have. And that is true of ethnic minorities, of sexual minorities. It is also true of the many tens of millions, deeply religious people, some evangelical, some of different faiths, who I think are leading meaningful lives in the United States today. And so then it comes to well, are always going to be moments where majorities invade the rights of religious or other minorities, and where people who may be liberals in the political sense, who may be progressive, are messing up. And that thing would say, yes, absolutely. Now, I would see the overall picture here much less apocalyptically than than you do. The Supreme Court recently decided, for example, that if you have deep religious convictions, you're not required to create a website for a client uh, who is going to celebrate a same-sex marriage. Now, I'm a strong supporter of same-sex marriage, but I agree with the Supreme Court on that ruling. I think that when it goes beyond the sale of standard services right, when we're not just saying you're coming into my bakery and I'm selling you a croissant that I've pre-baked and, you know, that is open to the general public. When it comes to expressive services, of course, the basic liberal principle of free speech and free expression and freedom of conscience needs to give us control over what we do. If I'm a portrait artist, I need to be able to turn down clients who I dislike or of whom I disapprove. And I would even agree with your perhaps more controversial argument about how to address people. I personally will certainly choose to address people in the way that they prefer, including their preferred pronouns, but I absolutely don't think that the state has a right to compel speech, including the compelled speech of which pronouns to use. And I will defend this, I think, in very straightforward, natural grounds on the need to have basic liberties in our society in which people can lead their lives as they wish in accordance with the deepest conviction, and one of those Uh, liberties we need in order to facilitate that is the liberty of free speech and you can say look but in the state of california there's this law or in over there there's this particular law and on some of those i'll agree with you and some of us will disagree but to take those specific examples and say that that makes the overall tendency of liberalism because of these few examples of where societies that claim and try to live up to liberal principles go wrong and end up being illiberal, that should color our overall judgment of whether this philosophy over the course of 250 years has in fact been a boon, not just to human freedom, but to the ability of humans of vastly differing convictions to live their lives in an authentic manner. I don't think that is a fair and balanced way to judge the overall impact of those principles?
0: Yeah, I mean, again, I think several points. One is that to me, many of those principles of social generosity, of liberality in the old-fashioned sense, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, needn't be mourned if we move past liberal ideology, which is being rejected across wide swaths of the world, precisely because it has this imperious quality that I mentioned. Domestically, in the West, across the developed world, it's bred, you know, the alienation that concerns people on the left and the right these days. At the heart of liberal society, you have people, you know, 100,000 Americans dying of opioids every year. And so it has this corrosive tendency precisely because I think it puts far too much emphasis on individual autonomy. I mean, that's one point that I would make, is that there's a sort of recognition now far more than you would grant, Yasha. And I respect your point of view, but I think there's point of recognition that liberalism is far more normative than it claims to be. And if that brings me in league with critical race theorists, I'm happy to be in league with them. I think that, you know, I don't have the sort of mindless view that a lot of my confreres on the right do when it comes to race issues. I mean, I have a great interest in the American 19th century, and it was very interesting that some of the most militant supporters of liberal ideology, as it was violently spanning France, right, in the late 18th century... And then in the 19th century, the people who were Southern liberals, they were liberals, could at the same time uphold human bondage. And they saw that as sort of the dehumanization of one class of people as compatible with their liberal theory. Now that they contorted themselves in all sorts of ways to achieve that. But this again to me shows that I have no problem being on the same side of some CRT critics of liberalism because you experience it today. It's claims to neutrality that are belied when liberalism sort of imperiously and ever more expansively spreads itself and its sort of normative practices, et cetera, to the detriment and in some ways is to the sort of coercive oppression of people who are non-liberals, whatever kind of variety of non-liberals they may be. It just becomes more and more difficult to say, well, that example is not really liberalism. Well, yes, some liberals do bad things, etc. Cetera, et cetera, but there's a thrust of an ideology that I think a lot of people are r- rising up against. And by the way, I'm worried that they're turning to genuinely unpleasant populisms that are festering that'll make th- Trump seem relatively tame. And I think the problem from my point of view with not necessarily you, but there's a kind of defend liberalism cottage industry. It often calls itself defend democracy, but it's really, you should talk about it as defend liberalism because it's an attempt to shore up liberalism when it runs up against majority discontent. But instead of saying, okay, what about liberal ideology is breeding this kind of discontent? It just says, well, people are fooled by dangerous demagogues. People are fooled by Russian bots, et cetera, et cetera. And it doesn't recognize how a lot of ordinary people experience liberalism. It's unfolding as a theory in practice. It sort of dismisses them as people who have fallen for Trump or for Orban or or for what have you. And I think that's a mistake. It's like, what is happening with democracy that you would want to defend it, right? It's put you in a position where you have to yell at people that, like, democracy is good. What does that mean to someone whose family has been torn apart, who's suffering from opioid addiction in the family, joblessness, liberal blessings of free trade have coincided with, you know, his county being completely overrun by opioids, et cetera, et cetera. And whenever you point any of these things out to a certain kind of defender of liberalism, it's either that... I have to just double down and say liberalism is good, is great, etc. Or that XYZ thing you point out is not liberal theory. I think it edges into this sort of, well, that's not real socialism. This is the life world of liberalism today.
1: That's an interesting point. I think that there is a fundamental difference, which is that every human society is going to have its shortcomings. And I do think that there's a strange conjuring trick where we're blaming particular aspects of contemporary reality on liberalism with a capital L when lots of liberal societies don't have that, right? I mean, is the opiate crisis because of capital L liberalism or because of, you know, corporate power and the particular American medical system and incredibly lax regulation of when doctors can prescribe things to people in ways that we don't have anywhere in Western Europe? We don't have an opiate crisis caused by the oversubscription of painkillers in Germany or in Italy or in Sweden or in those countries, and those are liberal societies. And so to go back to your claim about socialism, there's a fundamental difference where countries that have tried socialism have become worse on virtually every aspect of their reality. And so therefore, you know, defenders of socialism have to do this trick where they say, "Well, that wasn't real socialism. America is a liberal society, and Germany is a liberal society, and Sweden is a liberal society, and they all have their flaws, as all human societies do. But I will defend the claim that they are better than these countries were 200 or 100 or 50 years ago. And that much of the reason why they're better is that they are living up in many aspects of their society and reality, To liberal principles. so I think there's a difference between saying, look, you keep cherry-picking the worst things about our society and then somehow claiming that it's because of capital liberalism. And I'm saying, no, the things that you're cherry-picking are not because of liberalism. And on the whole, we can be proud of the societies we're living in, even if they obviously have serious shortcomings and flaws that we need to remedy. But I think we've had our disagreements about liberalism. To go back to your new book, to Tyranny, Inc., what is something people can do who are worried about some of those same things? Either concretely fighting back against some of those forms of corporate power, or in a broader sense, building the kind of political coalition that you think is going to be necessary in order to change the set of economic policies that we have in the books today.
0: If someone who's in a position to buy the book, chances are to tell them, well, don't shop at a place like this or that. That's a kind of impotent solution, because I just don't think that these crises, which are crises of market society, just have sort of consumer type solutions. And that's a great temptation. On the right and the left, you know, like I'm going to just shop at the whatever this and that. These entities are far bigger than that. And by the way, their bigness in many ways is rational. It's just that we just need sufficient countervailing power. So generally speaking, I think that what we need is an economy in which a much greater share of workers are unionized. And so I think that people who are in the type of position where they would buy books like this, I think that showing solidarity with workers on strike instead of complaining about slightly higher prices, et cetera, is the kind of thing that you can do. Also, by the way, I think a lot of people who are in intellectual take workers, et cetera, whatever the job might be, however it is that you manipulate information on a screen for a living, I think you can also organize because you're a worker. So I think just rethinking what it means to be a worker and not being tied to the idea that a worker is a burly teamster, carpenter, electrician, et cetera, is a good start.
1: Saurabh Amari. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having this debate. I think it's become clear that we have some interesting areas of agreement, some deep areas of disagreement, but hopefully it can also, even for sometimes heated, be a model of constructive and earnest political dialogue across some deep divides. And I think for being part of that.
0: I really enjoyed that. Truly.